This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Nick Ward. Coaching is Nick's calling. Almost 35 years on from starting as a coach, Nick is still active in helping people achieve their goals and improve their lifestyle, whether for the outdoors, on the sports field, or the Olympic podium. As the Altus Programs Director, Nick builds education and training resources that share experiences and extend processes. Altus is an elite training environment for athletes and a global leader in the provision of education for sport performance. The complexity of managing both the performance and health of athletes is at the heart of the Altus approach. Just a quick note to say that uh, you'll notice the first five seconds or so of this interview is cut out. That's because Nick was so keen to get going that he beat me to the start button and uh, I didn't quite manage to hit record in time. But it doesn't take anything away from the interview and uh, hopefully you enjoy this info. was one of the original players in the team called Saxton Rivers and uh, got into playing football and, you know, running and biking. And, you know, my eldest brother was a good football player. So was my other brother. And... You know, it was just one of those things that you did. We had a, a back street where all the kids, we just were active every single day. You know, the brick sheds with the chalk marks or the table legs became the cricket stumps. And, um, you know, we the chalk was where we draw out the Wimbledon tennis courts and, you know, and we play Kirby. Um, there's a little green where we had that, you know, council sign, no ball games allowed, which you was always ignored because there was also a couple of grumpy people. You know, his ball, the ball would go in their garden. But, you know, from the age of four to like 14, you know, my back street was just amazing for, you know, kids getting together, going out to play, playing the kids down the other end of the streets, you know, challenging, you know, the three streets across to go over to Overmead and play football. And it would last four hours, you know, typically throw the jerseys down and off you'd go. And, I started playing for Abingdon boys and uh, I, I turned into a goalkeeper because um, I was pretty useless on my feet and I didn't mind throwing myself at people's feet and hurling my body around. And um, interestingly, at the age of nine, I dislocated my thumb playing goalkeeper and that was my first experience of an injury. And uh, yeah, from there, you know, high school, uh, Larkmead school, you know, cross country, track and field, rugby. It was in those days where a lot of time was dedicated to physical education. I mean, I can even remember nursery school, primary school, you know, obstacle courses, doing chin-ups, agility drills, all this sort of stuff that we just did because it's a key part of, of, of curriculum. And um, then in those mid-teen years came the teacher strikes and, uh, you know, no sport. Everything just got cut. And um, I'm like, well, I'm not having this. So me and a couple of buddies really started to organize sport. We uh, ran after school clubs and we, um, yeah, we just made sure sport could carry on. We, we organized fixtures against uh, uh, opposing schools and even got the travel buses going. And we even had to combine with our rival school to go and play rugby against one of the wanted teams. But we just kept it going. And in the midst of all that, I was also uh, a pretty good goalkeeper. I was, you know... Um, playing county level. I was at Oxford United from quite a young age uh, with them as to, you know, kind of high level coaching and things like that as well. I had a really good PE teacher who was a big advocate of strength training. And unfortunately for me, I think at that age, um, 
I had physiotherapists telling me that I was too young to strength train. And, uh, you know, one of my big regrets is that uh, I didn't ignore that and, uh, you know, worked out with a PE teacher who was an ex-RAF PTI. Uh, but he was a really keen badminton player. I mean, every lunchtime we were playing badminton all the time, you know. So it was just a, a, a crazy environment to be in where to step outside. There was no fear. There was all someone to play with, teams to play with, organizations to play with. And, um, you know, for me, it all came crashing down around 15, 16. I was at England schoolboys level, but I had glandular fever really bad. And um, that was a long road to recover from. A previous friend of mine had had it. And, uh, you know, that was a very confusing time of how to recover from, from something like that. And, and really, there was no kind of support. So I kind of set myself a target of saying, you know, that really shouldn't happen to a young kid who had real potential. Um, part of my drive was to probably educate and skill myself to, to the point where I could hopefully be that person that might have that advice or guidance or, or be that signpost uh, to other young athletes as they grow um, so you know, they don't meet uh, or fail, if you like, at those points where you know, I kind of failed along, along my pathway as well. And that's not pointing fingers at anyone else. I also made a bad decision when I was 18 to go out and get drunk. And the next day I was playing for Barks and Bucks County with four scouts from the London teams coming to watch me and I was too hungover to play. And uh, there you go. There's another big lesson uh, as well uh, <laughs> in my career. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the exciting part of it, but also the downside of it, which, which sort of motivated me to really try and see youth performance, to be honest, is, is, is the area that I always really wanted to stay focused in. Mm. So how did that transition go into coaching? Did you go down the technical route first or did you go straight into the physical preparation? How did that evolve? Well, I took my FA prelim badges. Well, to be honest, at the age of 13, I was a coach for a boys' soccer team. Like I said, the school stuff went on. So I started coaching a local boys' soccer team, football team, and had an adult as, a, as, a, as an assistant. So, you know, I really enjoyed coaching at that age and, as a goalkeeper, I had to kind of learn to coach myself because there was no one really around. So I, th I think, you know, getting into coaching and, and also our, our PE, we CSE PE, like in those days, actually was teaching you how to coach as well. So a lot of exposure to that. And um, I, I was doing coaching uh, with Northumberland Football Partnerships, a guy called Barney Jones, but I was also working at a local fitness centre in Newcastle. I did my undergrad degree at Newcastle Poly. University of Northumbria, as it became as well. So I had a kind of a mix of both um, during that period too. And, you know, I think you got to that point where you go, well, I wasn't a pro, so I'm not going to make it as a professional coach. Uh, although I did like the America soccer camps and things like that, and there was an opportunity to probably stick at that side of things a little bit more. I found that for what I wanted to do and the pathway into maybe supporting young athletes was going to be more through sports science. And you've got to remember 1989, 1990, sports science was brand new. It was the sexy thing to be doing. It was, you know, PE degrees were converting. I was in two minds as to whether I wanted to be a PE teacher or not. So I didn't go for a PE degree to start with. I thought, do my three years at the end of it, see what emerges. Likewise, I was also thinking of going into the RAF as a PTI. Uh, we had an RAF base in Abingdon, and I did some work there for a period of time as well, that I kind of wanted to leave it to see what three years in this area would kind of guide me down. And it just so happens that I, ironically, I hated physiology and biology and stuff at the beginning. Um, I was doing more marketing and management uh, as well, but got more into that, especially after a year off. Uh, I took a year out after my first year and kind of hung out with a lot of like uh, freaky training guys and kind of got into it a little bit more. And so that, that led me more down that more training, physiology, sports science path. Um, but I always kind of kept coaching as that little bit of a sideline, that volunteer role and stuff like that. And to be honest, something which I've been missing the last four or five years because I haven't been doing enough of coaching outside of that strength and conditioning sports science field, which I think really benefits you uh, as a strength and conditioning coach to keep, to keep that up. Mm. And as I was kind of doing some, some research for this interview, I was going through your LinkedIn page 
and the amount of experiences that just kept loading. Here's another five, and here's another five, and here's another five. So you've had, you know, an incredible career of, of different clubs and organizations and even countries in terms of how your coaching career has unfolded. So talk us through some of those kind of highlights. And I know there's some, obviously, some, some key kind of organizations, both in the, in the States and in the UK. So talk us through how that kind of started to, to I guess, travel out for you as you progressed coaching-wise. Yeah, keeping a job is, uh, is a skill as well, I think. Um, <laughs> some were my choice uh, to move on. Others, others were, were not my choice to move on. And, you know, you've got, you know, if I just take a big macro view on this, there's different landscapes you look at. There's the funded roles. There's the professional roles. Uh, there's the educational roles. And then you've got, you know, you in your own private kind of, industry roles as well and, I, and i've been in all of those and experienced all of those and um you know they all have their kind of kind of pros and cons and you know the the um at university of calgary stuart mcmillan and i kind of set up our first company together there our athletic club uh, with both track and field and local soccer teams and start to get involved in hockey and and running running a business there but my visa was running out and um, I went back to England and kind of uh, went back to, to one of my peer mentors, Paul Winsper, who was at uh, Northumbria University as well uh, at the time. And just opportunities started to emerge. Uh, you know, Academy at Newcastle United, Durham County Cricket Academy, uh, Northumberland Rugby. I was also teaching at the local college. Then I started getting teaching work offered me at Northumbria Uni. And so as kind of time went on, I let that kind of visa just run out. So Stu was then doing his thing in Calgary and studying stuff up there. And I, you know, found myself kind of like, okay, I'm staying in the UK now. And, and I'm building off the back of these, these kind of smaller contracts, you know, that were kind of happening. And it was a kind of a unique time in the UK scene where strength and conditioning was only just starting to kind of get noticed. And, you know, you had a pocket of people up in Scotland. I think you had kind of, I think at the time you might have had uh, Margot Wells, you had Stowe, the Stones around, you know, with Gill and those guys. I didn't, I didn't know those at the time, but that pocket was emerging up there. You had a pocket around Loughborough with likes of Mark Simpson, Dean Riddle, uh, not yeah, Dean Riddle was around the country. Um, 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 one guy's name just goes out of my head. Uh, you had a pocket around London kind of emerging as well. And then you had a pocket in the northeast of England with me and Paul and Nick Grantham, you know, and, and there was some communication going on. But of course, back then, you kind of isolated in your own little pockets. And, you know, with the work that was going on with Paul, uh, there was a guy called Eddie Baranowski, who was doing a lot of work in soccer part time around a lot of different clubs. And Newcastle wanted him to go full time. And he said no. So Paul got promoted to the first team, left the gap at the academy level. And, um, you know, it's not about mates giving mates jobs because, you know, clearly Paul's reputation is on the line. He knew I had to go in and do a good job. And, you know, that was exceptional time working, working part time on that contract with uh, Alan Irvin, Alan Irvine, who's Scottish. Um, you know, I always remember him as the Everton player that fouled Trevor Hebbard in the uh, Milk Cup replay of Everton versus Oxford, um, which we uh, we we lost. Uh, in the in the replay in that game, but uh, so we always we always had a banter about that. But um, Alan was was a great mentor, kind of inadvertently with the work, his preparation, his mode, his ethics there at Newcastle, and these jobs just then kind of morphed into Paul. I've been talking to Dr. Peter Warburton at the University of Durham about kind of creating this kind of performance program with private contracts, how that would enhance the university setup. Uh, as well. And uh, to be fair, Peter uh, went for it. He wanted to invest in that, uh, advertised for an assistant director of sport performance. I got that role um, in, in a tough field. There was, you know, some very well-known people going for the role. I do think that my experience of having been in Canada and worked in a kind of a North American collegiate sort of system um, benefited me uh, as well. But so the University of Durham then was another, you know, absolute playground um, of learning 
uh, of stimulus, of opportunity for the next four and a half years, um, you know, with Newcastle, with Hartlepool United, with Durham County Creek Club for team and, and a bundle of other local clubs, university teams, and, and probably outside of Loughborough, um, it probably was the first organized university-based performance program, I think, you know, going on at the time. And actually, different to Loughborough, it was one that was um, everyone worked with the same teams rather than everything being parceled off, maybe. So I had, you know, I had staff, I had to develop staff, I had to put in professional development. There was a business model in that as well. I had to get revenue neutral uh, within two years. So that was key as well. And, uh, you know, I had people like Adrian Lamb and uh, Daniel Lewis and Colin Sanctuary, Jeremy Hickman, uh, all sort of came through there. And then, you know, when I moved on into full-time football with Sheffield Wednesday, um, you know, that became a great base for people like Julie Twaddle, Nick Grantham, Duncan French, Brendan Chaplin, all those people used that facility as a base for, for the EIS before that kind of grew and, and got developed. And, um, you know, that was a, a really exciting time. And then really after Durham, I'd say that's when the career roller coaster really started to, uh, <laughs> to be fun to, to keep jumping on and off of. So given all these different environments that you've worked in, as you said, you know, academic kind of environments, so as university, professional organizations, funded organizations, how have you had to adapt across all those different kind of settings in terms of, you know, what are similarities and differences? What, what are some of the skills or the transferable skills that you've seen or some of the things that were unique to different environments? Talk us through, through your kind of thought process and how those things differ. Well, I think a large amount of Dunning-Kruger, I think as well, a lot of confidence and not necessarily competence and a lot of very, very rapid and fast learning going into these environments. And, um, you know, I, I, I'll talk with a reflective mindset rather than say the mindset I went into these roles with. And, you know, there was a really good book by a guy called Michael Watkins called The First 90 Days. And it really got me to sort of look at the landscape that I'm going into, a big macro view of, you know, what is this situation I'm going into? Is it a startup? Is it a deconstruction construction project? You know, is it a, a realignment program or is it steady as she goes type sort of program? And, you know, there's a little bit of groundwork that you, that you need to do before you go into any of these programs. And, you know, sometimes, of course, you know, I'm going in just as the strength and conditioning coach. Sometimes I'm going in as a program leader or director or national lead or whatever you want to call it. But I don't think, I don't think it matters what level you're going in at. Go in with that broader mind of, of you know, um, what do I kind of need to know? Um, what, what are the kind of quick wins that I can look for in any of these situations, point one? Um, and point two, what are the kind of like the sleeping policemen you know, the speed bumps in the road that I need to be aware of. So I just got to approach with a little bit of caution. And right now, where are the big potholes in the road? You know, I don't want to be uh, dunking my nose into those and, um, and not, not making any progress. So there were three things that I'd always kind of try and stand back and take a, take a look at, you know. And some examples of that, and this might sound really simplistic, but you won't believe how many teams and squads and organisation don't even have their warm-ups organized, you know, and, and spending time just doing some deliberate structured warm-ups were not too, too much of a threat to the medical or PT team, were not too way out wild that the, the players themselves wouldn't accept them. In fact, they liked something that they got there and they go, oh, this is looking a bit organized <laughs> and a bit set up. It wasn't just, oh, hey, lads, go for a 10-minute jog, get your stretches done, then come back when you're ready. You know, so that's an example of, of some quick wins, you know, other quick wins are understanding the people that are there, who are the key players in the team, both in the playing team, you know, the, the, the coaching staff, the medical staff, and sometimes, and this can get difficult, putting in that extra time just to get to know people. And, you know, when you're running four or five contracts and you're chasing your tail, jumping in a car, going off to different locations, 
it can be difficult, right, to find that little bit of extra time. But that's something which I think is really key. And I wasn't always, always good at that. I'd probably say I was 50-50. I was always running off to the next thing rather than building in that little bit of time just to invest in getting to know your people a little bit better. So if you can up your percentage of time or expand your capacity to do that a little bit better, that, that becomes really, really important. So regardless of kind of the, um, the arena I've gone into, they're the kind of um, hopefully practical steps that I've learned that I would take with me in whatever organization or job situation, you know, I, I would go into now. They're my, they're my main learnings, I would say. Mm, there's some real gold in that, I think. You know, having been through a lot, a few transitions myself in different environments, I would agree that every one of those are really useful strategies and kind of things to keep at the, the front of your mind when you're changing environments. So given some of the coaches that you've worked with and there's some of the coaches that you developed and, and mentioned um, even in the last five to 10 minutes, what do you think makes an excellent youth or LTAD coach or practitioner given, given what you've seen over the years? Um, very biased point of view, first of all, but um, having children yourself, Definitely, and being a parent certainly gives you a perspective um, on, on how to, yeah, just understanding how children grow. You, you see that happening in front of your eyes. So not that I want all the young coaches to go out there and adopt and go and get children, um, but uh, that, that, that definitely, I think, can, can strengthen you as well. Um, spend time with people that work with children all the time. You know, I, you know, working with the young uh, groups with Barney Jones and coaching soccer, having coached young teams, but also go speak to PE teachers, go speak to school teachers, go to speak to people in, in pediatric um, parts of hospitals, which I did. You know, I think just you, you get uh, other lenses on, on, you know, what it's like to be working with children outside of, of the environment and maybe some of the narrow environment that, that you work within. Recognize that parents are very, very well-meaning, but sometimes can be the, uh, the fly in the ointment or, or the, the log jam to progression and therefore invite parents into the process um, and then find a way to work them out of the process but have them engage at key anchor points and key times of the process. Um, I think it is necessary to understand more about growth and development. Um, you know, how, however, the, the, the absolute influence of that over youth training programs really depends on your youth philosophy. Is it about developing skills, coordination, enjoyment, and setting them up for a career in sport and or life? Or is it purely about performance? And there's definitely a way that I sway on that as well. Um, because if you're going to focus purely on, on performance, you know, um, then I'm, I'm not sure how... Uh, well, training methodologies sort of can jive really well with growth and development. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, I would get very frustrated eventually with national governing bodies that were so obsessed with under 14 test results. And, you know, when I was um, thinking of going more into research, PhD research, because my interest was in youth, I kept getting told that it's pointless doing training studies on youth athletes because growth and development always override any training gains. Now, whether that's right or wrong, because I didn't pursue that, but I'm sure we all have experiences of, you know, um, you know, the one kid who gets very strong at the age of 14, 15, and then the kid that wasn't strong between 15 and 17 puts on 200 pounds, grows six inches, and just is, is smashing it in the weight room, if that's your way of evaluating it. And 
you know, undoubtedly growth and development has a huge part to play that can override uh, or, or sorry, not override the gains that another athlete may have had, but people just jump ahead because of that with no training, their physical pass capacity just grows, you know? And, you know, the kid who was the fastest rugby player and he goes from having size six feet, this is a true story, and now he can't run anymore. And his dad's like, oh, he's not going to make England or whatever, you know? You know, they're, they're the things that you've got to be aware of. And, and, you know, so for me, I want to take much more of a, of a skills, a coordination and enjoyment, uh, a habits, a characteristic kind of to this just, important to them in their sport development career. We, we have to reel our neck in a little bit and think that a young athlete doing four or five S&C sessions a week is just as important as them doing four or five sport sessions a week. It just isn't, you know? They're gonna be great at their sport. They need to practice their sport and, and a variety of sports we might argue. And, Sometimes we're not, not very good at recognizing the gains and benefits that comes from that. Now, I, I coached a young athlete. Um, uh, she's a heptathlete now on the international scene. She would come to me at Derbyshire Institute of Sport, Rob, one day a week. And one day a week was enough to see her progress in all her strength and conditioning athletic motor skills. It was enough because her coach, Dave, was also probably doing circuits and movement work in the track. Plus, she was a multi-eventer. So at least what I did helped set her up with the skills for when maybe loading those competencies became more important to her to progress as a, as a senior athlete as well. So I hope there was some train of thought in what I, what I kind of went through there. And, and um, I, I can see you'll be chomping at the to pick up on a couple of items that I mentioned there as well. Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, that, that's a totally cohesive um, chain of thought, I think, and I, I completely agree with you around the performance versus kind of skills and coordination approach. I'm, I'm totally on board with you with that one. And I think that leads quite nicely into kind of the, kind of the next piece, because if we are taking that holistic approach, one of the things that is really important is some of those habits and things that happen away from the training session, away from the training room. So I wanted to dig into a bit of the, the concept um, that, that James kind of pointed me towards during your time with England Golf, which is around those behavioural milestones. So, so you can dig into that as a little bit in terms of what were some of those milestones that you looked for and how did you go about encouraging them? You know, the, one of the big triggers for that was uh, Jeff Cook of Durham County Cricket Club. Uh, he was a director of the academy and... Um, you know, he literally said one day, Nick, if we can't make these kids into great cricketers, let's make sure they leave here as great people. You, you, you get those one sentences off these kind of mentor coaches at times in your career that just goes, wow, you know? And, and that's a time when my head's at my backside about sports science, about testing, and, you know, not necessarily looking at everything else that goes into the role, right? I, I was probably super focused on the right stuff, but too super focused on it. And that, that was, a, was a big kind of paradigm shift for me. And, you know, it made me realize that some of these kids, if they don't become great cricketers or soccer players or rugby players or football players or whatever sport track and field athletes, they could become the next generation of coaches. So I felt then as much as our field gets maybe undermined or misunderstood, I felt it was also then my role to have a kind of a pedagogical approach into this that helped them understand, helped them become better students of their own sport and all the factors that play into that. And I guess I was heavily biased in early days of, of the organization called BASES, British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, when they used to have the interdisciplinary group. You know, we all kind of were generalists. Me and Clive Brewer would have these conversations a lot of how we would love that to come back. But in some respects, if strength conditioning coaches can get their head out of the weight room, you know, we are the generalists, right? We do apply 
principles of coaching from a number of different areas that we draw in and, and, and we can influence, you know, what kids are eating, how's their recovery, how's their overall training being planned, who's managing this with them, you know, with their parents and their other coaches, looking at their overall week, looking at workload, you know, because a lot of these questions that we measure and we demand of ourselves to measure in our narrow little world of strength and conditioning means nothing if we're not evaluating it within the big picture and big circle. So we can influence that because they're the things we're thinking. And these other people might not be thinking those things. Now, it's not to go in and say, hey, you know, you're dumb, I'm smart. You're not thinking about this stuff. It's like, hey, you know, what's really important to you right now? What are you noticing? You know, hey, I wonder how we can manage that better. And so it's finding that problem at any level of the, the sport development spectrum that the player, the coach, the parents are having, and then trying to get all those people involved in how do we manage that problem a little bit, a little bit better with that as well. Um, so, you know, with, with, with that in mind, I mean, like I say, Jeff Cook really kind of set me on that path of um, looking at things in a broader picture. And, um, you know, I, I, I would actually go way back to um, my work in Newcastle United and be fair, even to Nick Grantham when he was working with netball very early on in the early 2000s, they had already started to do this. They've been breaking down movement skills and different capacities. And then I just started to extend that on to recovery, to nutrition. And rather than focusing on, on the ability, it was a kind of a skill will matrix kind of concept. Um, but how much do I need to direct this input versus how much do we empower them? Bit of self-determination evident in this approach as well. And I was very lucky in my master's degree to come across the trans-theoretical model back in the mid-90s and its very early beginnings, which now people might know as the stages of change approach. And it's so heavily used in psychology, in motivational interviewing, in, in counseling, that, it, that it's really taken a, it's become very popular again. And uh, Anthony Turner will tell you about when I gave the presentation at the first ever student conference, you know, most people were scratching their heads after my presentation. They're going, what has this guy just talked about? Because I was talking about this stuff at that first conference, how important it is to build a wider curriculum, you know, a, a non-linear approach to this, whereby it's not that all my milestones are layered directly upon each other. It's recognizing, you know, um, do they have the, are they able to identify, list, describe stuff? Then are they able to explain and maybe make some decisions on what they can do? Finally, you know, are they able to kind of construct and really um, synthesize their hope need? And it's that progressive pathway that I was sort of trying to put together that allows the people involved in this to have good discussions, you know? Um, so I, I evolved that with Newcastle United Academy. Um, I evolved that with Durham. I evolved that with Hartlepool. And really the England golf one then kind of almost come at the apex of a number of years of, of really thinking this through and putting this together for a sport like England golf. And look, here's a bit of marketing, witchcraftery, psychology stuff here, right? A lot of golfers don't play golf to be fit, right? We come in, we're, we're like, we're the demon, right? They're not there to, to run and lift weights. But if you uh, put over an approach where we're talking about this holistic approach of how well you can recover so you can go and hit more balls, how well you might ensure your nutrition is sufficient so you can get around, you know, 18 holes twice in a day in tournament play, they're softer roads in to then build to the other areas. So I also found that in the train well, eat well, restore well approach, that it gave that young player a hook for me now to connect with them on, rather than being, you know, the big bad sergeant major that's going to make you run, jump and sweat a little bit, you know? That's unfingling golf, the way they'd changed, you know, the, the coaches that were involved in everything as well. There was a complete, again, this is timing and landscape, like I spoke about earlier, the timing was right for this, 
You know, I can go back 10 years earlier when I was working with British water polo, we started having this kind of discussion around all this stuff and they literally threw me out of the room because as an, organ an organizational level, they weren't ready for these discussions, right? It was just like, yeah, we can invest this 10,000 pounds into Nick doing this with us through University of Durham, but it could be money wasted. We haven't got, we're not ready for this. So England golf was definitely ready for this. The mindset was there. You know, um, the, the, the people in play there, Rebecca Hembra and Nigel, and those people had, had kind of set this up too. So the framework allowed me then to organize a number of different components, you know, that could be emphasized or de-emphasized, both in terms of how me and Dan Coughlin then kind of pushed information to the squad, but also how an individual player then was given the choice to say, I'm more interested in nutrition right now. I'm more interested in sleep right now, or actually, yeah, I do want to improve my fitness. And we kind of realized that they were interested in their fitness for three main reasons. One is because they were told it was going to prevent injury. The second reason was because they actually did believe it's going to improve their performance. The third reason was because it's just something they like doing, you know, it was just part of what they did. They enjoyed the feeling of working out. So when you are able to kind of go through your performance profiling approach, and I still love Butler's performance profiling matrix and model, and, and, and you know, I don't think enough people utilize that well enough. That allowed you then to come up with you know, their vision of their future self, the things that they feel were important. And by setting up this type of program, I don't actually have to write a bundle of individual stuff. I'm like, here it is, take from the basket what you want, we'll debrief. Now I've got this matrix model with some kind of descriptors of what their behaviors and actions are like. I can say, hey, tell me a little bit more about this now. Well, that's no longer just listening and identifying. They're able to actually talk about it. You've gone from amber in this box, you're now agreeing, you're now amber in the next box. So it wasn't like, I have you gone from 20 to 30? It was a way of actually qualitatively assessing this change in behavior and actions that we then know would lead to changing capacity and those other things. And same thing I did with Talent and Athlete Scholarship Scheme when I was the national lead. It was very much behavioral and action-focused monitoring um, that, that I put in place rather than it just always be, have you got stronger, have you got fitter, have you got faster? Yeah, I think that's gold there. I'm, I mean, I've kind of done, I've been trying to do something similar just in the last few months around building those those background habits of sleep and, you know, nutrition and all those kind of things. And it's funny, what I've kind of come to the realization lately is like nine times out of 10, nutrition isn't a nutrition problem. It's a planning problem. And it's the person who lacks the habit of planning or the behavior of planning. So by the time I walk into the convenience shop, I'm now at the mercy of whatever they have on the shelves. But the problem wasn't what was on the shelves. The problem was I never planned what I was doing today. So we can address the nutrition issue, but we've missed the real source of the problem, which was habitually organizing. And then, and then that's transferable now, isn't it? To training and to other things. It's transferable. It's recognizing those set of skills. 100%. You absolutely nailed it on the head there. It's the behavior that's the problem not the availability of information about what to do, you know, absolutely nailed it, Rob. Mm. And I think that's something that, again, you can get, coming back to the kind of models and stages of change, people can get really frustrated because they think, I've told you the information so many times. Like, I know I've sat through clinics with the nutrition with different national teams. And then three months later, this, you know, the player I was sat next to will turn around and say, what should I have for breakfast? I'm like, I know you know this information because I was sat next to you, but you haven't applied it or you haven't thought about how it's specific to you or you haven't then sat down and gone, right, how do I synthesize, as you said, that to create a plan for myself um, instead of asking for a meal plan from someone that is generic and won't fit my situation? Well, and that's where that's where the stages of change then allowed me to kind of calm down a bit about the situation because everything is cyclical. It doesn't doesn't go linear, right? They, you know, you take your your team you're working with. One week they win twenty five nine, 
and they were great at this. Next week, they sucked at that, and they lose 16-4. You're like, what happened in a week, right? So these behaviors and skills are not just relevant to the things we're looking at. This is why at Sheffield Eagles, with the youth development there, we aligned the messaging across the board from medical strength and conditioning and coaches. What's our theme this month that we're going to work on? So it could be, you know, all right, we want this week to work on feedback, you know? So we'll set up a strategy on, on getting them to understand different styles of feedback. We do text messages, we do video reviews, we would do feedback in the immediacy. We would do debriefs. We'd get players to lead group feedback sessions, you know? But we didn't just do that once a year. These, these were cycled back through again because everyone is going to learn at different rates. And you have to have parallel curriculums going on here, not just one line of approach. And that's something I've learned from school teachers is this kind of parallel curriculum that they have to have in place they're trying to stratify stratify a group of kids that are all at different levels right they need to have this pathway but also be able to duck out and kind of spend a bit of time here with someone you know and i learned that from from looking at um, uh, pedagogical sort of research as well so you know yeah i think these skills and behaviors stretch a lot further than just working with us and it's kind of pseudo psych and there are some great you know uh, health coaches and psychologists that probably uh, can, can help us refine these things a lot more but the nice thing about it rob was that while it was my responsibility to help develop support and grow this type of program it was i wasn't accountable for it the player is accountable for their own progress their own life how they go about things and I felt this allowed them to have the accountability. They were captaining their own ship. I was just helping to navigate. And then I could obviously have other coaches in the, the team that I'm working with navigate some of that as well. So there wasn't necessarily cross lines and over the debrief processing. And you know, this really worked when I was the performance director of US bobsleigh that, uh, sorry, Canadian bobsleigh and skeleton that we, we needed to make sure that everyone wasn't having their own little debriefs that were kind of clashing against each other. That was done in a very cohesive way. So this, I, this same kind of behavior action model I put in place with the National Bobsleigh Skeleton Teams with Canada. And there was a guy at the time that I worked with on the nutrition that Stuart got me to bring in. Not a very well-known guy, a guy called John Barardi. Um, <laughs> came in as my nutritionist, and those of you who know precision nutrition, everything he dived into was habits and behavioral stuff and having taken his precision nutrition level two, it's one of the best learning experiences that I've ever, ever had. Uh, and so much of that has proved useful to me again in, in my direct field, not just nutrition. And, and that and it's with a curriculum of behavioral kind of coaching stuff um that that you can use on that cyclic but with yourself as the coach if you're on a role as a coach educator let's say you're mentoring other people that's really useful but also then overlays and, and laps with overlaps with what your players uh, might be working on and need yeah no I, i've i've taken uh certainly taking precision nutrition um, level one. And that was one of the things that really stressed on, stood out to me was the focus on, it's very different to other ones where it's all about, you know, how many grams of carbohydrates and how many grams of protein. Whereas this was very much around habits and behaviors. And I thought this, this is different. Like this isn't, you know, what you would expect when you come to a nutrition course to talk about why, why is it important to you that you, you know, change this behavior? What, what are the consequences if you don't change this behavior? What are the benefits? You know, normally we dive straight into the, the X's and O's of this is what you need to do. This is, you know, how many macronutrients you need, but actually taking the time to sit down and understand someone's mindset and why this is important to them and what their motivations and drivers are and what's at stake and all those kind of things just creates so much more kind of, I guess, fuel on the fire to achieve something. And I think He's, he's created some really interesting stuff that I think is, yeah, definitely worth diving into if people haven't. But certainly, as you said, transfers across multiple domains, not just nutrition. Well, so one talk thing, us Rob, through... as well, right, oh, is that you get to a point where, oh, no, you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, right? And 
you stop enjoying your job then. I mean, you want to go in with a smile on your face, wake up looking forward to a good day's work. If you wake up wondering whether you're 30 or 40 athletes or however many you're, you know, oh, I wonder if they've done that, you know, I wonder if they, you, you can't carry that accountability for them on you all the time. But you can be confident knowing that you've set things up in place that, you know, if, if they're going to grab hold of that opportunity, you're there for them. You know, the right information at the right time, delivered in the right place is really, really key. And, and you know, one of the simple things I did with the Sheffield Eagles players when we were full time, the kitchen was a great place just to throw the players every Monday were ready to look, wonder what, you know, they, they take the mick out of you. I wonder what BS Ward is putting up on the board this week. But then what you would do is this, you would see someone, would, it would spark an interest. Now in that group environment, you know, there's banter going on and everyone's, you know, having a dig and a play. And what, you, what I did was I didn't get involved in that because if I see that player asking a serious question, despite that it come with a lot of laughter from the rest of the players, right? You go, okay, there's a request there, there's a hand up in the crowd, but I'm not gonna go and grab that hand right now because this isn't the right place or the right time. So motivational interviewing then also helped me a lot to then find a way to find a safe space for that player to come and speak to me and kind of in 15 minutes kind of nail down what the, their action steps, you know, their map to success could look like. And I, I worked with a PhD student called Rory Max on Sheffield Hallam on being a private tutor to me on motivational interviewing to to um, you know, listen and record my sessions with my players um, to help me be better at those conversations. Because um, as everyone knows, I can, I can talk a bit. And so I learned to use these two things a lot more and uh, you know, be, be better at questioning as well. So that, that was really you know, something else again that was quite influential in me setting up these programs of behaviors and actions because the outcomes are gonna follow. You know, you can call it process goals, if you like, you know, um, and, and relieving myself a little bit of that accountability became really important, too. Yeah, I think you've touched on something really interesting there. And it's, it rings true with conversations I've had, like as coaches tend to get more experienced or maybe maybe, as you said, bang their head against the wall for a few a few times, you start to realize that it's not necessarily the content that people are lacking. It's it's the way it's delivered or it's the timing or it's, you know, helping someone along that journey of, just, of that light bulb moment. And actually what, what I've realized great, great coaches do, it's not that the information great coaches have is any different from the information that bad coaches have, but it's the way they have those conversations. And some are really good at doing it naturally. Some have done like you have, have sought out to improve things like motivational interviewing. But it's very interesting because when you, when you speak to people at different points in their careers, you know, young practitioners will often be all about the next course or the next methodology or the next, you know, piece of technical coaching. Whereas often with those people who have that content knowledge, they are going that level deeper of the interpersonal skills of the, you know, those com crucial conversations and understanding human psychology. And it's really interesting to kind of juxtapose those two um, because sometimes you can fall into the trap of thinking more and more content knowledge is the answer. 100% agree with that. And um, apologies for the plug here, but you know, we're going to be launching the Altis Mentorship. Uh, actually, we're in that launch phase kind of now in a nine-month program um, with, with Dan Pass as the lead, the lead mentor. And um, for me, it's a really exciting program to be able to put together. And, and we're recognizing that there's that group of coaches, like you say, maybe three to five years in where the content has been enough what they've learned academically has been enough. The courses have enabled them to have more good content, but that comes to that point where you realize this isn't solving my problems. Again, I'm not enjoying my job. It's like the problems that are now being posed to me, my courses don't teach me this because like you said, it's about content. What the measure, what's the next, next best exercise, you know? And I think that's why mentorship becomes super, super important is to have those people that you can duck out of that fast flow and maybe just anchor yourself for a while on something you need to grow and develop on, whether it be a you know, problem first approach 
or you performance profile yourself as a coach and go, these are the areas I really suck at and, 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 and aren't helping me grow and, and kind of either secure how you feel in your job right now or pursue to that next level. And that's why, you know, I, I really feel that finding the right mentor and finding an approach to mentorship um, is something once you're, once you find yourself at that point becomes, becomes quite crucial um, if this is a career that you want to stay in. Mm. No, absolutely. I think that's bang on. That, that's led, led very nicely to my next question was talk us through what, what's your role at Altus look like? What's a day in the life of Nick Ward? <laughs> Well, that has changed immeasurably, as it has for a lot of people over the last 12 months. Um, initially, I was brought to South Lake Tahoe to head up and direct a program in conjunction with Barton Health Memorial Hospital, who were building a, a $10 million new integrated facility, so orthopedics, rehab, uh, performance and wellness. And it was partly the brainchild of the benefactor, but also one of the top surgeons here, Dr. Terence Orr, who used to work with Stedman um, about having a, you know, a Mayo style, you know, across the whole continuum type program. And they'd actually gone out, the people from Barton had gone out to Altis uh, a few years before I even started the role and really liked the performance therapy approach, philosophy, you know, the integration. It wasn't silo, the medicine and the training everyone talking to each other, everyone overlapping, and a bold move by them to say in a heavily medicalized insurance-based system, that's what they wanted here. So that's what I, I came on board to, to launch and deliver. So, you know, the, it changed as I went from a very small warehouse type facility to a bigger facility, um, but it would vary between, you know, 5 a.m. starts, running, you know, some kind of performance-based classes that would have a particular theme to build skills, as well as capacity in people, um, to then um, more smaller group, semi-private type sessions. Um, here, I have to be honest, I mean, I had to shift my mindset because this was mainly a general pop program and it was fantastic. If you live in South Lake Tahoe with mountains, with bike trails, with ski hills and stuff like that, most people that are in you know, coming through the rehab pathway They've had a pretty catastrophic injury. Talk about all these other behavioral things we spoke about. You're working with people that have, that have been exposed and experienced some pretty low times. So that was normally in my sport, I get somewhat like stage three. I'm with someone before they've even had an operation and working through that as a team was amazing for my growth and development as well. As we kind of developed and I started getting links of US ski and snowboard, and Matt Jordan up in Calgary, one of his skiers was the girlfriend of one of the US skiers. So I got to train with those two and I still train them now. So that, and that was post ACL stuff. So I was learning a crap load of stuff about that immediate ACL or Matt Jordan's work and what US, and US ski and snowboards return to snow processes is amazing. If you ever get a chance to chat to Callum uh, Butterfield on, on that whole thing they put together and Gillian, their physio, Highly recommend you, you have a chat with them about everything they've done to kind of nail that, that process down uh, and how integrated it is. It's fantastic. Um, so, you know, then there was like uh, local soccer teams. We started to build that in as well. And again, that behavioral approach and was very, very key to all that. So that was rocking and rolling. We had, you know, over 300, 400 clients at different times. We could have over 500 because we'd have the local ski hills send their employees in and we had a program around that as well and then i was involved in the development of an outside part remember we have snow here quite a lot but then there was going to be an outside development which was going to be amazing a track out there um wellness walks all this sort of stuff and and i you know working integrating with nancy lawrenson who was the health coach who again if you want to get anyone to come on and speak about stages of change and that stuff she would be ideal to speak to. She actually used to work at the National Sports Medicine Institute in London when everything like this all first kicked off back in the day. And she's been in cardiac rehab at high levels and things like that. Lived in the UK for a long time, although she is American uh, as well. And then COVID hit and everything got shut down. So my pivot, and I mentioned very early on in our discussion, my interest in marketing and management and Obviously, you know, I've had a role in business growth and development and, and raising money for things. Um, I had a pivot and uh, that was 
you know, sitting with Stuart, writing the Altus Need for Speed course and putting in sort of uh, learning curriculum based stuff, doing tons of interviews, um, you know, getting out there, editing those, um, you know, really getting some some really uh, you know, magic from these speakers who were coming to to have interviews with about the program. So that was, uh, you know, probably from April, May through to about August, that was daily doing doing that and learning how to build and grow and create content. And since then, uh, the launch of that, we have, uh, you know, looking at our entire marketing kind of coordination. So um, as programs director, I, I do, I, I'm looking at potential growth and development of programs, Barton was one of them. We've had two or three other programs that are non-track and field. So I do everything or, or look at it, but that's kind of non-track and field related. Um, you know, the, the, the partnership with US Ski and Snowboard and so on. And so it's ba basically trying to grow the company more. You know, we, we cannot be effective as coaches uh, and have an impact in the profession of track and field and working in sport performance as we grow more into that area if we're not a successful business, you know? So we have to do both. We have to be successful as a business and we need to continue coaching. Just over the last year, coaching has been down here and growing as a business has been up here. As coaching is, 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 is growing more and more, you know, we're now looking, we're expanding our marketing team. Um, I feel like I've swallowed four volumes of marketing stuff over the last year. And, and I've been helping to coordinate the, what I'd call the marketing technicians, uh, you know, grow our products and, and be better at how we can get more free information out there, how we can get more content out to people that elevates the coaching world and that then maybe somewhere along that pathway makes them think about buying one of our courses, coming to one of our Autist Connects, um, you know, we'd love to get the, the ACPs back on the ground again. And then, like I said, the, the Altus mentorship that's, uh, that's starting in July as well. So that's been, been the big focus for me. And, you know, and, and Stu said, look, you know, not that we're a huge company, but any kind of new executive that a company brings on, they say, go and work in the post room for two weeks, then go and work here. So I'm learning a whole new part of growing a business that I thought I knew quite a bit about in the past, but now I realize I knew Dunning-Kruger kicked in again, right? I knew I, it's amazing what marketing people do. You know, I'm a terrible copywriter, you know, but I can put ideas together. I'm, I think I'm very good at creating video content and coming up with some of the videos and interviews and stuff that we're doing. So I'm enjoying that side of it as well valuable to me because I learn tons and hopefully if I find talking to someone very interesting then I hope other people out there will also find that conversation who I'm talking to interesting as well so you know trying to give back to you know, those coaches that you know I've helped develop over the years and I know there's layers below that maybe giving those coaches material they can use in the education of their own staff and their own facilities as well so very much a big, big pivot and flip. Um, more coaching is coming on board. Um, the skiing stuff is starting. The town's got lively again here and people are kind of asking, when's Nick gonna start coaching a little bit more too? So I'm biding, biding my time with that. And um, you know, at some point, Altis will also have you know, a, big, a big announcement to make if it's not out there kind of in the world already about you know, an exciting new new venture for them as well. So we'll see how, how that changes my direction and my journey over the next five to 10 years also. Fantastic. Well, for those interested, where can they find out more about you and about your work at Altis and about Altis itself? Well, like you said, my Facebook page is about three pages long for where I've worked. <laughs> um, www.altis.world is the website. Obviously we're out there at, at Altis and at Altis EDU on Twitter and uh, at Instagram. And yeah, anyone wants to directly contact me, um, you know, at Nick Ward underscore coach uh, or Nick, um, what is my Altis email again? N.Ward at Altis.world. Uh, yeah, just reach out. Happy to have conversations and uh, anything you think you can um, 
put me on the straight and narrow about or have a discussion about it's great and all about speed development still in team sports and how we can impact younger athletes and you know how we can get people playing faster and be healthier and, and safer in doing that as well so that's still my uh, my major focus but um yeah thanks thanks rob for uh, having me today and uh, it's been a good conversation appreciate it yeah thanks so much for your time it's been there's some real gold in there i think for coaches at every part of the developmental journey so i'm sure there'll be plenty for people to to take away and implement and certainly i've 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 been yeah provoked to, to think a, a bit more myself so you know i've benefited and i hope those listening will benefit as well if you enjoyed this episode there's a number of simple things you can do to help support the podcast first hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you're kept up to date with the latest episode releases Second, you can leave us a review to help us reach more coaches and parents like yourself. Third, you can send this episode on to a coach or friend to help spread the word. And then fourth, you can find us on social media.